All right. Here we are once again. Once <laughs> once again, not together. Oh, that's it's so sad, but it's, it's also weird. so great. Yes. The virtual library still is a damn delight. <laughs> so many, so many, so many damn books. So welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Quan Barry in the damn library virtually with us. Quan uh, Barry is the author of the novel She Weeps Each Time You're Born, as well as four books of poetry. She lives in Wisconsin and teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yes, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. We're so glad you could come. Yay! Um, your book is just, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I put <laughs> it down. Um, I love, it, it seems like it's like tailor-made because I love um, things set in schools. I love um, witches. So <laughs> this was really, really exciting to read. They're having a moment, so yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, they are and they aren't i mean i feel like it's less a moment and more of a just like a becoming a sect of society that everyone's mm -hmm. like oh yes the witches <laughs> <laughs> but before we get there um i should talk about the drink that i mm -hmm. made for oh yes So I'm calling this drink um, "Signing Emilio," which, <laughs> which uh, is a is is a notebook in your uh, in the novel. But it's also so the the cocktail is basically a take on the gin gimlet, which is very simple. It's li uh, lime juice, simple syrup, and gin. But I wanted to make it a little bit more um, connected to the book, and I was looking in my tea library. Um, a different type of library, and uh, and saw that I had Lady Grey, which is one of my absolute favorite types of tea. And I just was thinking of this all-girl field hockey team and Lady Grey being sort of connected to them, as well as, um, so instead of flavoring the simple syrup, which I often do, um, I flavored the gin by cold infusion. And that's when you just take a tea bag and you put it in your uh, a couple ounces of gin and put that in the fridge. And what that does is um, it gets all the flavor of the tea, but none of the bitterness. Um, I don't know why cold brewing does it like that, but it makes for a very different um, flavor profile than if you did the exact same ingredients, but flavored the simple syrup with it. It actually mm -hmm. would taste different, which is pretty wild to me. Um, and so this is just, uh, just you shake those things up and you, um, you know, then you strain it into a coupe if you've got one. And so that's, <laughs> that's the, that's the signing Emilio. Um, nice. And yeah. I love a gimlet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a gin drinker. It's gin or vodka. That, those are my, those are my Hell two. Yeah. So. I don't have any Lady Grey uh, because I have a slight Bergamo allergy. What? I know. It's just one of those things that you sort of, I'm like, why do I always feel bad when I drink a great like the tea? fanciest allergy ever. <laughs> really. Because, you know, when you, when you go to the allergist and they do those scratch tests, I'm like, I don't think that's one of them. So. But so I used uh, an Assam, like a very robust, very rich Assam, which was a surprising experience. It was just, I've never tasted those notes in that tea because usually when I hot brew that tea, it's just a bitter, like, kick. Um, and Quan, you were saying you used a different tea too. Yeah, so I used a Moroccan mint tea, which was oh. just lovely. So yeah. yeah, it was super, super good. I highly recommend everyone trying cold infusion. Uh, like a cup, you only need to, you don't need to ruin a whole 
a bottle <laughs> of gin you can you can experiment with just a little jar and um and yeah it's really fun yeah um, that's i had done that and so i told a friend of mine so we did it yesterday and then he had also tried simultaneously to just put like he has a lot of fresh mint in his garden and so mm -hmm. he put just like a lot of fresh mint in gin but it wasn't the same thing at all as again mm. this mint moroccan tea that i infused in the gin so it's like whoa yeah. Cool. I also love that that gives the gin like a different sort of color to it, which is like sort of inky and thus signing Emilio. <laughs> I want to explain that reference, but we do one other thing before we start talking about your book, um, which is just talking about what you buy. Ah, yes. Yeah. So again, we're living in strange times and uh, it maybe shows like, so like re it's summer for me. Summer is when I do most of my reading, you know, I'm not teaching. I'm mm -hmm. just, so, and especially because obviously there's not that much to do these days. So it's true. Like my house is just piles of books everywhere that I've just been reading and reading and reading. And so I actually did just read, I'm like, why did I read? Well, it's a long story, but I did read White Fragility. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it was interesting. It had some, you know, I could see why people are turning to this text now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, it's an important one for folks to look at. And then, as I might have mentioned earlier, uh, before we started recording, I'm also a swimmer. Mm. And so I don't know. I can't remember where I came across this one. But again, Ooh. A Why We Swim. So Bonnie Tsu. So she's, um, she's a reporter. And so this book is just sort of like a bunch of essays about swimming and history of swimming. And so for example, I stumbled on the, um, the ancient Japanese art called, um, it's basically samurai swimming. And so it turns out that people in Japan, some people still do this like ancient art form that basically evolved because Japan is an island. And so when the samurai during the warring, I guess it's called the warring period, when they would be fighting, they might fall into a river or fall into a lake and then they would drown because they're wearing all this armor. So they basically learned how to swim, like wearing all this crazy armor. And so Whoa. there are still people, yeah, who care. So the book is full of like weird facts about those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a good read. And then I'm not quite sure why I am reading Fight Club, but I'm reading <laughs> Fight Club. And so um, I mean, obviously I've seen the movie, you know, I have to admit, I've never read anything by him. And I didn't Ooh. realize it's his, it was his debut book. You yeah. know what I mean? So um, yeah, it must have come out, I guess in the 90s. I must. I was probably in grad school, but- I think um, it was like 96, because I think the movie is 99. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, again, I just, like I said, I just, I think I always in my mind equated him with like a certain kind of guy who, who would read it <laughs> be like, you know what I mean? But I, I hate to admit how much I'm enjoying it. So anyway, but that's what's, that's what I'm reading right now. That's what I bought. There is one more, yeah. I'll talk about it maybe a little bit later, but yeah, there's some other things too. Cool. Wow. Um, Christopher? Yeah, you know, I bought something. I've been, I've been meaning to buy this forever. Uh, I grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes and um, my parents' copies of Calvin and Hobbes are just ruined. Like I, I've just like their, their covers are messed up and cause I would read them right before falling asleep and then sleep on them as though they were sheets. Um, and so I think I have like Calvin and Hobbes in me by osmosis. Um, and so I finally decided to buy my own, the collected edition. And I've been meaning to do this forever. And I finally, and it's been like, it's been just a complete and utter joy to revisit. Um, is it just huge, a huge book? Is it hardcover? It's, it's, I bought, I waited because they've, the first time that they 
put out this collection, it was three enormous hardcover books. And then they did do a different one where it was four paperback books. Oh. And so I bought that paperback version. And it is still a little unwieldy, but they always <laughs> So it also sort of feels like, like holding this childhood object as well. Nice. So it's really, really nice. nice. That's yeah, really great. Yeah. Finally have this yeah. added to the collection. Yeah. Drew? Uh, I got two books in the mail the other day uh, sent to me from, I guess it's Anchor Books, uh, is republishing all of William Melvin Kelly's books. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a New Yorker profile of him two or three years ago that Catherine Scholes did. And it just, I was reading it and I was like, how do we not know this guy? The two books that I've got here are A Drop of Patience and Dem. And it, he was a huge deal in the 70s and 80s and has sort of disappeared. And then this profile came out, this huge resurgence of interest in reading his books. And I had flagged it, but it's sort of, you know, as one does, they're walking around and you can only keep so many names of books in your head at any one moment. Um, but we got the email from a publicist and they said at the top, you might remember this profile from The New Yorker. And I was like, ah! please send them to me um and so i'm i'm really excited i think i'm gonna drop into a drop of patience first which it looks like it's a a new york jazz novel and i'm here for a new york jazz novel that sounds I, great i'm sure it's i'm sure it's it's gonna be an amazing book but i have to say something about that title almost sounds like like you know like sometimes when they caricature titles like you know like in movies or somebody oh he's the author of it it sounds like that kind of title but i'm sure it's gonna be an amazing you know? So, yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I'll put that on my radar. Cool. Nice. But so the book that we're really here to start talking about yes. is your book. We ride upon sticks. Um, and for our readers who maybe don't know what it is, our listeners who don't know what it is, would you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So I grew up on the North Shore of Boston in a town called Danvers. Uh, back in 1692, when the Salem witch hysteria started, uh, the city of Salem was actually much bigger. And it actually, it included other towns on the North Shore. And one of the towns that Salem used to be, used to include in its boundaries was the town of Danvers. And Danvers back then was known as Salem Village. And a lot of the occurrences that happened that sort of sparked the witch hysteria actually happened in Danvers. And then in 1752 or so, Danvers decides, Salem Village decides it wants to become its own town and it breaks off from Salem and the rest is history. And so it's true that today, you know, the city of Salem makes a lot of money on tourism, people coming to see things, you know, it's witches 24 seven. And yet the town of Danvers, where it all kind of started, like we don't really talk about it that much. Um, <laughs> And so I grew up in this town and I played field hockey. And so basically we ride upon sticks follows the 1989 Danvers varsity field hockey women's team as they, it's a kind of a rags to riches story as they go from being like sort of the conference losers and losing all these games to um, battling their way toward the state championship. And along the way, you know, maybe they dabble in the blacker arts to try and help them improve their game and to make it to the state championship. So there are 11 characters, or I'm sorry, there's 11 characters in the book um, because a field hockey team has 11 players on it. And so each chapter follows a different player and what kinds of things are going on with them um, during the course of their season. 
Wow. That, it's, yes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so, it's so much fun. It's so good. Um, my college best friend uh, was born and raised in Danvers and we went to Boston College. So I, he, he gave me all of that scoop when our first Halloween, I was like, let's go to Salem. And he was like, yeah. oh, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, there are 11 main characters in this novel, mm -hmm. which I remember yeah. when Christopher and I were both first reading it, we were like, have you ever seen this? Because it's not like there are two main characters, mm -hmm. you know, in like the classic 80s movie feel. Mm -hmm. They're all there and they're all very vivid. Yeah, and completely wanted, realized. How did you do it? Yeah. Mm. You know, when it comes to writing, because again, I'm primarily trained as a poet. And so mm -hmm. it's true that a lot of what I know about fiction, I also write plays as well. Um, oh, cool. Everything about that stuff, it's, it's self-taught. And so in some ways, like, I don't really know the rules, right? You know, I mean, it's true, like, I teach creative writing, but um, <laughs> so I, I would tell, like, an under, don't have 11 main characters, but, you know. It's a good lesson. Yeah, know? but as far as, you know what I mean? So for me, I don't think I ever, I didn't know how difficult that would be. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh, there's 11 people on a team. Cool, 11 chapters. <laughs> Woohoo, there I go, right? And so I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to know, like, no, avoid that at all costs. So it was just sort of organic. Like once I figured out what the structure of the book was, it was fairly easy and fast for me to write. Mm. Um, but the thing, as you read it though, I definitely was very much aware of the fact that I needed them to have individual characteristics. So there's a lot of like physical description of characters. They have, you know, they have various physical things that, that delineate them from each other. Um, you know, maybe they also have actual uh, personalities in certain ways or personality quirks that, you know, that, that distinguish them. So I was very much aware of trying to make them all very different. And I was also very much aware of very quickly trying to establish them because I knew that by the time you get to chapter 11, you know, if you haven't really seen that character that you see in chapter 11, you're going to be like, who the heck is this? Right. So mm -hmm. I had to establish certain things really early. So, so yeah. Wow. I, I'm curious about um, the witchcraft and and how you incorporated it and what you wanted to do with it and what you did for research as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big researcher. Okay. Like some people, like I have friends who like, you know, they research, oh my gosh, like everything. What kind of underwear were people wearing in 1960? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just like not my style. Also, because I grew up in Danvers, the history of the town really, I just knew it, you know? You know, you, you go on these field trips, you see things around town. Um, it's just sort of there, you know? And so um, I knew that I wanted the, the witchcraft in the book to be very much DIY. You know, I wanted them to be figuring it out. So it wasn't going to be like really prescriptive where they really knew what they were doing. You know, <laughs> just kind of like, ah, oh, we're going to play around and see what happens. I think in some ways that kind of mimics aspects of childhood. You know, I have memories, you know, a kid, you know, you you play like Bloody Mary or you do something mm -hmm. like, like yeah. legs of feathers, dip as a board, or you're just always trying to like conjure things like, Oh, if we do this, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just kind of a kid thing. And I just wanted them to be just like a step up above that. So they really wouldn't really definitively know how to run a coven or anything like that. Um, <laughs> and so like I said, so it is really DIY and because it's DIY, it also means I didn't necessarily have to do that much research. <laughs> um, I could just sort of figure like, well, what, what would, you know, teen, teen girls, what would they try? What would they do? that kind of thing so yeah that makes sense i love the um christopher the emilio of it all i don't want to steal it if you want to be the one to explain it since you named the drink after it um, yeah i mean that that they all um there's a there's a notebook with it with his face on the cover 
Um, and that it's kind of the the nexus of their power. They sort of uh, they 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 sign their names into it basically, and that's that's the beginning of of them getting really good. It's such a it's such a great it dropped me immediately into where we were when we were and in that way that while all 11 of the team feel disparate there are these moments where they sort of all join together like any like any good sports team particularly in high school like I remember that feeling of just when you walk down the hallway as a team the like the boundaries of people blur but the the Emilio of it all in my head I was like oh right that man was a sex symbol at some point. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I just, it was so fun to see the things that you did and didn't include. How, how, what was it like writing about your hometown in a, in a time that you knew it? So usually, you know, when you copy edit a book, so your book is done, you send it to your press, you know, they, they send it to the copy editor and hopefully you hope when it comes back, it's going to look beautiful and there's hardly <laughs> any markings on it. That was, that was not the case here. So the copy editor was very serious about fact checking my book. And oh, it's wow. true that 99.9% .9 of everything mentioned in it is kind of factual like as far as places go and things like that. The only places that are made up are actually in New Hampshire, a few of them. They, they, the book opens in New Hampshire, but anyway. But for example, that is the name of the restaurants downtown. It's, you know, it's Supreme's Roast Beef, it's Rocco's Pizza. They still exist. You can still go there. You know, there was a point where Sunny, I think it's Sunny Lanes. I can't even remember, but there was, there's a bowling alley that's mentioned and I had it wrong. It was either Sunny Vale or Sunny Lanes and the, and the copy editor's like, no, it's this. You know, <laughs> I had like, again, the name of like the local sporting goods shop wrong. She's like, no, it's this, you know. Um, so... It was fun for me because I do, for whatever reason, as of right now, knock on wood, I have the kind of memory that people are always like, how do you remember that? And I have mm -hmm. no, I, I do not know. <laughs> um, but it was fun to sort of play with that and to pull these memories out. So there was definitely that aspect of the book and that was just fun. Um, but as far as the 80s itself go, I mean, the 80s are a problematic time. You know, obviously it's Reagan, you know, yeah. it's AIDS, it's crack, it's all kinds of things. When you, and Molly Ringwald herself has written, I think in The New Yorker, she had an essay about this many, many years ago. You know, that those, some of those movies are problematic. You yeah. Know, you go back and you see the way in which women are treated, you see again xenophobia, you see homophobia, you know, all kinds of things. And so I knew that in setting the book in the 80s, it was a chance to to have fun with the hair and the music and all that kind of fun stuff, but to also revisit this time period in a way that was critical of it and to show, you know, um, how far we've come, how far we still need to go. But then again, that was aware of the fact that the 80s weren't just bubblegum pop and big hair. I I'm curious about how your uh, practice as a poet is brought into as a novelist like where what do you bring and what do you what are you happy to sort of like leave behind yeah in this book I don't think this book necessarily shows in obvious ways my poetic background the way that my first novel does my first novel is um it's very lyrical it's very sad um, it's very poetic I think in certain kinds of ways as far as like how it's actually written it's kind of a ghost story and you know, what have you this book isn't obvi obviously poetic, but the way in which I recognize it, I hope, and maybe other people do too, is being a poet's book. Because I do think, because it's something that I've worked on, um, I do think this book has a kind of timing to it. That, that's not to say that as a fiction writer, you can't have timing, but um, there is a sort of timing. So yeah. 
one of the fiction writers that I actually love, I'm not sure anybody reads him anymore either, um, is Martin Amos. Like he, he, he's kind of a problematic guy in certain kinds of ways, <laughs> but I still love me some Martin Amos, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like he's the master of timing in his comedic stuff and even mm-hmm. in his essays, you know? And I always, I should just actually pull it down one day and actually look at it. But there's this amazing, I still remember this, he has this um, description of Mitt Romney in one of his essays on America's <laughs> political culture. And he basically describes Mitt Romney as having like the perennial wince. Like every time he tries to smile, he has this perennial wince of a man with a sore shoulder who's just shrugged his way into a too tight dinner coat. You know, that's how he, that's how he always looks. And it's just like, it's true. You're like, Mitt Romney does look like he's wearing too tight a coat and that's how he's smiling. Oh, yep. you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> So again, it's like, again, I, I'm, I'm butchering what the sentence actually was, but there's like a kind of, there's a timing to it. There's a mm-hmm. precision of language. Um, and so it's not just a poet's thing, but, um, but oh, you know, Martin Amos, his dad, you know, Kingsley Amos, you know, poet mm-hmm. of England. Yeah. Um, and so I do think in this book, that's how the poetry aspect of things is most evident. Um, I don't think it's necessarily evident in other kinds of ways, but in, in mm. other things that I'm working on. So for example, I'm working on a novel right now that's set in Mongolia. Um, and it's true that I always like to try and give myself one thing that makes the book maybe a little difficult. You know, when thinking about <laughs> this book, like, is, like I, if I, I would have to think about like, what makes this book, I can I say difficult, I mean like, not necessarily like in a, in a Michael Andache kind of way, like mm-hmm. difficult, you know what I mean? But I don't know, but in the new book that I'm working on, um, I, I don't know how, I mean, it'll, it will probably be listed in the book flap. I hate the way the book flaps, like give things away. Yeah. But I'm not sure if most readers would pick it up, but it's true that the entire book, like the entire, entire book, no matter what happens, it's, it's written in present tense. Um, even when there's flashbacks, it, it's, it's a book about Ooh. Buddhist monks and anyway, but so that's kind of what makes uh. it harder. It's like the whole thing is written in present tense, regardless of time. Um, and so th- I think there are things though in this book that do add that. I think as a poet, what I like is I like to work when I read. Um, I have theories about the idea of um, the, the ineffable. So William James, you know, the Harvard, I guess he was a psychologist or was he a religious scholar? I mean, I, he's known for his religious scholarship back in, mm-hmm. the, you know, back in the day. Um, but he, he claimed that there were six things that any religious experience had to have. I can't remember what all six are. One is it had to be like a certain kind of time element or it had to be a an immediacy to it, you know, other kinds of things. But one of the things that supposedly a religious experience had to have a quality of the ineffable, right? Um, again, of the inexplainable. And mm-hmm. I did, it may, and thinking about that, I've just realized that that's the kind of literature that I'm drawn to is, is something that at the end of the day is slightly inexplicable. And I think at the, at the heart of it, that's what poetry is about. Poetry is about saying the unsayable in a certain mm-hmm. kind of way. Fiction isn't necessarily about that as much, because sometimes fiction is just about storytelling. I think that's fine. But I can tell it for me, I'm interested in the ineffable um, in stories. So this particular book, you know, is there a bit of the ineffable, ineffable in it? Like maybe, um, I don't know, something to think about. Mm. I really, hearing you say that, it makes me think about the way that you do deploy witchcraft in this book, which is very canny. I kind of went in thinking of uh, Grady Hendrix's My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is like another late 80s pop-infused story. And it's like two high school girls, and one of them is maybe possessed by the devil. 
And so when I picked this up, I was like, oh, okay, maybe there's witchcraft. And the way that you read it, this, there is just this question the whole time. And without giving too much away of what happens later in the book, the question really, to me anyway, it felt like it continued for the whole book, which is, I, 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 I don't know how to describe it almost the way that I felt where I, I'm not a terribly religious person. I look for magic in the world. And this was one of those things where I was like, wait, tell me that it's, tell me that it's here or tell me what's happening. Right. And the, the way that you always shift away from it felt very sly and very canny. And I loved it so much. Thanks. I think, you know, in many ways, because I wasn't really thinking about it when I was writing the book, I wasn't really thinking about it, but <laughs> the idea of the fear of being labeled young adult. Right? Mm. Um, I think people think, oh, it's a book about teens, it's gotta be young adult. It's witchcraft, oh, it's definitely young adult, you know, and, I, and it's not it's not young adult. And I'm not, I think young adult has its place. It's just that I'm just not interested in writing young adult right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there are many ways in which the book, so, you know, and some people have criticized it for the, for the fact, for example, the field hockey does become secondary. I'm like, it's true, like the field hockey. You know, I don't <laughs> think you come, like maybe you come for the field hockey and you stay for other things, but it's true. It's not like, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and I kind of feel the same way about the witchcraft. You know what I mean? I, I think right. that you could, there's a way in which you could come from the witchcraft and be like, and it's not, it's not kind of a witchcraft book, even though there's witchcraft there, you know what I mean? And so, um, like I said, so I don't know how conscious I was of if, if I sort of, you know, split the issue in certain kinds of ways in order to have it both ways. Again, if it was more of a fear of young adults or if it was just, I think that the book's larger concerns just had to do with identity formation and figuring right. out who you are. And so that's where I went as opposed to just the more plot, plot, plot driven witchcraft kind of. I totally felt that because the, the, um, the biggest spell that they have to do is sort of um, to earn their place in the notebook. You know, they, they've got to do some bad to like, <laughs> to give some of their soul to the devil or whatever. Um, and that, that all becomes character moments of like, what is, what is this uh, main character going to do to give themselves over to the notebook? And so it became like a very, um, I think that that's what I was really reacting to and why I was so taken by it is like, it isn't necessarily like research witchcraft of like, oh yes, this is from the Maleficent Malarcum or whatever. Like, no, this is very <laughs> much like this is, you know, Quan Berry's version of that. And I, I was really reacting to that. I've heard before that you, that the best way to write about a place that you've lived is to leave it. Um, and, and only in leaving a place can you actually capture it. Do you f find that to be true? And did you, is, is, is that how you felt writing about Danvers, like the, a place that you grew up? It's interesting because I'm very fortunate that I've traveled a ton. Um, you know, humble brag, I've actually been to all seven continents. And, um, you know, when I go, so for example, the book that I'm working on now, which is set in Mongolia, I was in Mongolia in maybe 20, 2008, mm -hmm. but, um, and similarly, 
um, I was in Antarctica maybe 2004. Anyway, the point is, is it took me years to realize what I want to do with those settings, even though I was there a super long time ago. So oftentimes, like, I'll go to a place, I'll have no idea. Like, it's not like I go, like, oh, I already know I want to write a book about X, and I need to go there and see it. It's like, I'll just go and see someplace, and then years later, I'll be like, hey, wait a second. I can write it. I could use Mongolia or Antarctica. You know what I mean? Um, and so... I don't, for me, I think that's probably true, but I don't, th I don't think it's, it's as conscious a thing like, oh, I need to leave the space so that now I can write about it. It's not, it's not a conscious thing. It's just, that's just how it sort of ends up, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, a, a, a thing that ended up getting cut from the book, I think, I can't even remember anymore. <laughs> I, um, I didn't get the rights from, which kind of makes sense. I didn't get the rights from Bruce Springsteen to really <laughs> quote from, um, born in the USA. Huh. It turns out, and it makes sense, he doesn't sell those rights to anybody because sure. I guess like he doesn't want it obviously used like in a car ad or whatever. So he just, he doesn't sell the rights. And so, but we didn't know that. And so there was a much longer section or again, I can't even remember now, like did it? I had to cut it back. So I can't even remember like <laughs> what ended up, but where the character is talking about being in Italy and hearing born, on the, born in the USA for like the first time and she's in Italy and she really understands what that song is about. Um, I can't remember if I had a similar experience in Italy, like hearing that song like on the 4th of July and being like, wait a sec, this is a song about Vietnam, right? This is a song right. about some dude who comes back from Vietnam and is just screwed over, you know, like terribly, you know? Um, and yet here in the States, like I never really put that together. Um, well, and so I do think there is something oftentimes that you do, I don't think it has to be that way, but I think for many of us, for whatever reason, it just is, right? It's almost a way that like, you know, there are things here in Madison that I, places I haven't gone to, but I'll go to them like when I have people visit me from out of state. Then it's like, sure. oh, let's go to this museum. Let's go to this. But like when, you know, people are here visiting, like I don't go, you know what I mean? Um, same thing with Salem. Like I really don't spend that much time in Salem and Massachusetts unless like, you know, people are coming to visit. Like, oh, let's go to Salem, you know? <laughs> I also keep thinking about your use of the word ineffable uh, in the context of the novel that you brought to us, August Town by Kai Miller is, I mean, it's a novel about religion and the ineffable. And well, would you, would you tell us why you recommended it to us? Yeah. Two or th two years ago. I can't remember. I guess it says right on my copy. No, it doesn't tell you the year. Anyway, I was a judge for the, the pen open book award. There were like three oh. of us who were judges. And so they sent you, like 155 <laughs> books, you know what I mean? And then we had to split it up and you had to read various things. And this was one of the books that I, you know, got sent to read. And I was just like, oh my God, this book is so amazing. And, and I really followed it. Like the New Yorker had a, a long piece about it. It wasn't mm -hmm. just in briefly noted and whatever. And yet I'm not sure how it sold, you know? I'm not sure if it actually ever found um, its audience in the way that I would hope a book like this would. Um, then I've read other books of his. So he has, this is his third novel. I actually think his second novel, The Last Warner Woman, is also an incredible, incredible, incredible book. Oh, cool. Um, he's also a poet. Um, and it's interesting to me that people, you know, I, I don't want to pit, um, like, like there's only room for one Jamaican author. Like that is not <laughs> what I'm suggesting, you know what I mean? But there's a way in which obviously Marvin James known in certain kinds of ways and yet i think kai kai's time will come but i don't mm. think he's i don't think he's there yet but i'm just waiting for him like to be like booker or something you know what i mean and so mm -hmm. so why did i pick this book um 
he makes it look so easy. And I don't know what I mean. <laughs> and I think, you know, because I've read enough of him now, I think this must just be, I think different people, like their minds work in different ways and that's mm-hmm. just how they do it. This book also has a lot of characters. Um, yeah. They're also really, like even people that you hardly see are really fleshed out. You know, like for example, there's, if you remember, like there's a cleaning woman in the book who you only see for like two pages and yet we get her story of how she's schizophrenic and she had this dog. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody gets their due. Um, mm-hmm. when it comes to structure, I find the structure of this book just to be amazing because I, I can't even figure out how it's really put together. You know, it's a, it's a single day, you know, um, and yet all these things happen. And, and then, you know, the first time I read it, I had to reread it, um, the history of Rastafarianism, which I yeah. knew nothing about. And then I got really into that, just learning about like, I don't know what I thought about Rastafarianism. I did not know that in Jamaica, that Rastafarians are, are basically like the bottom of the you know, society that people look down on them. I didn't know anything about that. Um, again, just colonialism. And, and then obviously like if thinking about things happening now, I mean, police brutality and just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a timely book in so many ways, you know, mm-hmm. the haves and the have nots, but, and, and it's just beautifully written and in places it's funny and in other places it's heartbreaking. Like I just think this book is, yeah, I just think it's pretty amazing. I think it's amazing that it takes, I mean, like the, the action of the day, takes place uh in the 1980s so you could sort of say that like there like this was happening at the same time as your book like <laughs> we write yeah. upon stick yeah. like that this is what's it's so crazy to think like this was a life in the 80s in jamaica versus like a life in danvers mm-hmm. um in america um i was i was really taken by the structure too i think that that was what's what what hit me the hardest is just that it just wins like it's sometimes it's the 20s and, and sometimes it's the 80s and sometimes you're in ma taffy's like adulthood or or end of her life and, and sometimes you're at the very you know you're you're hearing a story from her childhood i i was i was completely taken by that i how did you guys find find that because that was i i i never felt lost even though you will you might think that you would um mm-hmm. with something like that yeah I mean, I read it in almost one sitting. I think it was like three sittings. And that was because it just kept me every every time I was like, okay, maybe I'll go take a break and do one of the things I'm supposed to do today. He would pivot or shift in some way that I was like, well, now I need to see where this goes. Or, oh, I've been wondering about how this was going to fit in. And it, it, feel, it felt like a puzzle in some ways and that really satisfying not like a mystery novel where you are trying to get on top of it but just watching the pieces come together to make the whole picture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like i said so this is his third novel and i have read his other two and so i when i was rereading this i think i do think his second one the last warner woman to me is just yeah it's an amazing book but in those other two books he has he's in, he's obviously interested in structure um, and he's always having like a cast of characters and they're always interweaving in certain ways. But in this one, it's the most fluid. In the other ones, it's not that it's not fluid, but it's very much like, here's a chapter about so-and-so. And then you're like, and that's like, it's very, it's very strongly delineated, like bang, 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 bang. You know what I mean? Whereas in this one, it's just, it's much more, oh, here's soft paw. And then here's this person. And it's, you know what I mean? Um, and so I feel like this is where he, where that, where that structure of like ensemble cast really works for him really well. Um, in rereading it though, I was also surprised, um, like how long it kind of takes for the real narrative to get to kick in, Yeah, you know, and yet he keeps you, you keep going, 
But I was like, oh, oh yeah, it takes a while to get like to where we're really going. Like you don't really know where we're going for a very long time. Oh, that teacher is, oh, that character, St. Saint, Saint Joseph, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh my yeah. God. Uh, you know, because it's it's really um, the the action of the book sort of is taking place because um, uh, her great nephew Kaya has his dreadlocks cut off by a teacher, and you don't meet that teacher until like eighty ninety pages, like almost a third of the way through the book. Um, and I just, as soon as we met him, I wanted to hate him, but I don't. You don't hate him. You just you're just sad. Like he just makes you profoundly sad. And I think that that is one of the really amazing strengths of, of Miller as a writer is that like you, he could have just been like, yeah, this guy's a villain and like, you should hate him. But he instead like tried to give you like, here's how someone becomes kind of broken, mm-hmm. which yeah. I was, I was very, I reacted very strongly to. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the stuff too. And I think he's a master of, um, I guess, I, I guess, Patois. I mean, I don't really know what you would call it because they dialect, mm-hmm. but you know, even the way that he gives you like, the history of the word autoplaps, you know what I mean? Oh, the whole I time, love like that. you're kind, of, you're kind of using your own thoughts to try and put context together as to what it could mean, and then you kind of get this chapter like, oh god, you know what I mean? And just like, <laughs> Good. Yeah. so weird, and yet, like, it's perfect for the book. It's what it needs, and yet, you know what I mean? So, cause so much of it is like it's context because a lot of the, like, the Jamaican stuff, like. Like I had to look it up to figure out like what does that word maybe mean? Like they keep saying like ra- rass cloth, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I looked it up and it maybe means like ass cloth. So it's maybe like something you wipe your butt with, but or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just, but again, you can kind of tell from, from context and it's, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But he just, he assumes it. That's again, the thing about the ineffable is like he gives you enough that you have to make that last leap. You know what I mean? It's like, you yeah. gotta put it together, so. I, I, I was so taken by that language too. And I, I and I wonder, the difficulty of including of knowing how much to put to make it still readable but but still show that it's the the way that um people speak in this region i'm i'm fascinated by that because people put the gas on that sometimes and it's very it's too much and it's really difficult to read but i never found difficulty here i just i can't believe how easy this flowed i just mm-hmm. keep saying that i know mm-hmm. but yeah I didn't know that he was a poet until probably two thirds of the way through reading. And I should have figured it out because of the number of quotes that I either wrote down or took photographs of. Cause I was just like, Oh wow. Like this is this, I'm obsessed with this line. Um, some days have more roads than others and some roads more distance. So that when a woman complains how long the day is, maybe she is counting its roads rather than its hours. And I just, I read that, and I read it like four times and I was just like, wow, wow. And I, I think so often about some of the novels by poets that are really touted as like, this poet has delivered a lyrical, Quan, your first novel is very, it feels like that. Or uh, Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. It's, it's lush and it feels, you're like, oh, poetry, prose, I see. I it feels like the more compelling thing to do both what your book does and what this book does of just writing a bunch of really good sentences and put them on the page together, (laughs) you know? And like, it's, I just, I feel like it's, I'm excited to 
I'm excited to hear that his first two novels are so great because I really want to read them. But yeah, I'm excited. The second to, one in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to go back to this too, just to revel in the language. Yeah. It really washes over you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, his second one, The Last Warner Woman, I think that's an interesting one to read because it, I don't want to say what happens, but it, the idea of storytelling and what storytelling is gets foregrounded in a way. And you see that like, the project is about storytelling and the power of storytelling. Yeah. This also, I, I, I did a lot of research after reading this book in a way that rarely will I do, but I, I, there's a note at the beginning where he basically says, this is sort of true. It's sort of not. It's based on a real place called August town. Mine's called August. And like that little collapse of the real and the fictional. But then like you were saying, the history of Rastafarianism I had no context for and this book does that great thing of teaching you a fair amount while also giving you the push to go do more research on your own mm-hmm. yeah well, and it, it also just does that one moment um where it's where he kind of steps back and he's like by the way this isn't magical realism <laughs> <laughs> like because there's a floating preacher like there's a there's a preacher that I mean it's a it's an indelible image of like that his like people are like making holding his shoulders and making sure he doesn't fly away fly away um and and then you know that sort of break of like this isn't magical realism i'm not you know mark gabriel garcia marquezing around here like this is some this is real this really happened or i i, yeah. I think that's fascinating it makes me want to reread i haven't read it in years i've only read it once i have to admit like i read it when i was young and I didn't understand it, but that Song of Solomon. So Song yeah. of Solomon, I mean, there's still that like Sugar Man Fly Away weird, you know what I mean? And people, you know, I, I get in research, you know, people talk about the like flying Africans as a thing. Like people, you know, there was like maybe a movement where people thought that they were going to fly back to Africa or what have you. Um, so I would, someday I, I need to go back and reread Song of Solomon just to see like, are there resonances here, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, and the whole thing about who that guy is his name, Alexander Bedward. Mm-hmm. You know, I like reading about how, you know, where the novel came from is that, you know, he's at a lecture and the guy's like, hey, we need to start writing about this history of this preacher guy, this real guy. You know? Yeah. And then just, so then when you read about who Alexander Bedward is, and then you see like the imagination of how he thinks about his story and turns it into this. You yeah. Know I, mean? I just love that kind of lineage of like how you go from the actual who that guy was and what he did. And then you end up with, you know, this. Yeah. It's really fascinating. You said you discovered this uh, being a judge for a a book prize. Talk about being a judge for a book prize. That seems like a really (laughs) cool and weird and difficult job. Yeah. (laughs) I was also also a judge for the NEA. Um, The NEA was tough because we had so many, we all, we all read like, almost 2000 applications Ooh, my God! Um, and then you have to talk about them. And that was tough. So <laughs> um, with this, with the pen, it was like, we decided we had again, 155 bucks and we decided to split it up. The thing that made the pen incredibly difficult was that it's it, the pen open book award is for a writer of color. Um, but it, it's across genre. So you could have somebody writing a memoir, you could have wow. poetry, you could have fiction. And so right. to me, that made it so difficult. Comparing those things is very difficult. <laughs> like there was one book and I was like, this. so there was a book actually by a woman who I think, I, I think you pronounce it, she's a Yazidi. Um, 
And basically it was her memoir. So the Yazidi were a, an oppressed minority in Iraq, I think, or Syria. I'm not quite sure which. And anyway, it was a memoir about being like a, a sex slave. Um, and just her story. And it's just like, she's addressed the UN and she's, you know what I mean? But the thing about it is, is that like, it was her story as told too, because I think she actually, as of, at that time, was actually maybe illiterate. And so it was just like, it was this amazing story, but A, she didn't write, you know what I mean? So it was just like, how do I, how do you even think about judging like this amazing, important story, but that, right. you know what I mean? So, so it, it just, because of the genre thing, it just made it very difficult, at least for me. Um, it, yeah, that was hard. It was hard because again, like I said, the, the, in particular, the nonfiction, I thought made it, made it even diff- more difficult. The book that we ended up picking is a book called, she's, she's written for the New Yorker. I haven't seen her that much in there. I think her name is Alexis Okowo. Um, and it was a book called maybe Moonless Sky, Nightless Sky. I, I'm, the moon, Moonless Sky is in the title. And it was a book of essays out of Africa, just basically about different groups like Boko Haram and, and people who were sort of fighting against extremism in Africa. And it was just, it was, again, lovely essays. Um, but again, like how would you compare like these essays about, you know, things happening in this book? I mean, it's just it's super hard, so. Wow. But wow. It, it definitely introduced me to things that I, I didn't know about this book, you know what I mean? So, right. um, so yeah. That's, wow. I would love to volunteer to be put in that very difficult position <laughs> for exactly that reason. To just like, what might I find in this pile? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To be sent 155 books in general, it seems yeah. kind of like, like a beautiful nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, one thing that we get to do on this show is just unequivocally recommend books. Um, and so maybe it might be time to, to go into recommendations. What do you think? Yeah, sure. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. This has been such a hard time for, you know, authors you know books people's books come out and then they disappear and like I feel really lucky bang book came out March 3rd and I got to do like two events that were super important to me one was I had a big party here in Madison and then I, I got to have a big party and a reading in Massachusetts and then the world ended and then I was like oh I'm good so it was true that like the, you know like my book tour got canceled and all that kind of stuff but it didn't I didn't feel bad about it you know but I know it's hard for people whose books are coming out now who don't get to do anything yeah. Anything, anything, anything. So a couple of books to recommend. One is um, The Coyotes of Carthage. So by this guy, Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright, um, full disclosure, he was a UW student in our MFA program, but he had a real life. He, um, <laughs> he actually worked for the Obama Justice Department um, in their oh. voting rights division. And he's now, he, he teaches in the law school here at UW. And basically the Coyotes of Carthage, it's an amazing book, which I think has already been optioned by like Amazon or somebody. Um, it's basically uh, an African-American political fixer is sent to somewhere in the South. I think it's South Carolina, but it could be to basically fix like um, a ballot initiative. So basically a mining company has, has this ballot initiative where they're kind of tr- trying to trick the local people into passing a law that would then allow the mining company to come in and to buy public lands. And so, but I mean, Stephen knows his stuff and like you read it and, and I've heard him talk about it, that nothing in it is satire in the sense that like, this is how this stuff works. Wow. You know, that you get these, these PR companies, or I don't know how to, how to describe these political organ companies. I mean, they're not PACs, but 
you know, they come in and they run a campaign and again, it's, it's dark or soft money or dark money and you don't, nobody really knows who's running it, but they get local people to be the front or what have you. Um, so it's just, especially in thinking about now, thinking about the election coming up, it's just, it's a really, it's an eye-opening book just because you, you think like we're all kind of cynical and we, we think that we know how these things work, but to really see somebody who knows how this works and talks about it, and it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing book. Oh, that sounds um, awesome. So yeah, wow. it's that. Then, and then just two other ones. So one, again, is, um, it's called Imperial Liquor. It has this amazing cover, um, Ahmad Jamal Johnson. Basically, this is a book of poetry. So um, how do I describe this book? It's hard to describe books of poetry that don't necessarily have like a, you're like, oh, these are all the poems about, you know, one thing. But so I would say the book takes place mostly like in L.A., um, in black L.A. Um, you know, Maud comes of age in the 1980s. And so it's kind of that time period of just thinking about L.A., and different spaces and different people and all those kinds of things. I mean, you can kind of tell by like just even like the look of the, the cover and the way it's mm-hmm. done, you know, kind of a black exploitation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's a book of poetry. And again, I just think it's really just super amazing. I love awesome. that cover. So yeah. And then um, just two things. So a friend of mine, his book, again, it's a friend of mine, his book is coming out tomorrow. And I think this book is going to have, I, so it's basically called The Son of Good Fortune. It's by Leslie Tenorio. He wrote the short story collection Monstrous, which came out mm. maybe in 2000. So he's Filipino. And basically um, Monstrous, which for a short story collection, like those stories were everywhere. People were teaching them. I mean, it's, it's always interesting to me when a story collection comes out and people you know, story collections don't usually make splashes, but this story collection, yeah. I mean, to the point where um, two of the stories were actually adapted into a play. I mean, it's, it's the story collection's been everywhere. So anyway, his novel follows um, a mother's son who maybe who are Filipino and undocumented here in the United States, and um, and that comes out tomorrow. And again, it's called The Son of Good Fortune. Um, nice. And then lastly, a book that I, I've ordered, it hasn't arrived yet, but it was in the New Yorker last week or a couple weeks ago, has the amazing title and its essays of um, Dostoevsky reads Heigl in Siberia and bursts into tears. That's, <laughs> that's the title of the book. And basically it's an art critic. I think he's Hungarian and he's an art critic and he's just talking about art. And at least in the title essay, I think he's kind of looking at Dostoevsky and Heigl and just thinking about their different approaches to like rationality and irrationality mm. and suffering and what have you. Um, and I'm just really interested in that as an idea. So it's very much a sort of more philosophical text, but again, like their essays where he's looking at different art pieces and thinking about these things. So I'm excited for when that book finally arrives in my hands. Oh yeah. yeah. Sounds cool. awesome. Oh, I love that title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All his titles in the book are all like just those kind of like amazing titles. Like, yeah. Uh, Drew, do you want to recommend something? Sure. I will also recommend two novels that have come out during uh, the COVID times. Um, one of them is actually Grady Hendrix, who I had mentioned earlier with My Best Friend's Exorcism, uh, has a new book called The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And it is in the Deep South in the late 80s, and uh, a book club of moms is suspicious that like straight up out of Salem's lot, a vampire has come to town. Um, and it, it just, I mean, it reads like a great horror movie. I sent it to my sister and she texted me at uh, two o'clock in the morning, LA time being like, I can't sleep. You jerk. 
<laughs> wait, wait, so is it scary or is it funny or scary or, or is it? It's, okay. it's funny, it's scary. It's also really trying to dive into some of the same things that Quan, your book is diving into of like, we can't just hold up the late 80s as like this fun time. Um, but he's using horror to, you know, do what horror does, peel back the world and look at the horrible corpse that lies underneath. Um, it It's a slow burn and then it gets very scary very quickly. Mm. Um, so I, I mean, I love it. All of his books are so weird and quirky. Like his first novel horror store looked like an Ikea catalog. Mm -hmm. um, and this one is set up so that each section it's not quite chapters but each section is somehow tied to and somehow manages to pull off a little bit of like meta commentary on a great novel that like a women's book club in the late 80s would be reading mm. um so i thought that was very fun and then the other novel is i i'm i was bowled over by this book uh the margot affair by sané lemoine uh it is set in more or less present day in Paris, a young girl has an actress mother. Her father, it turns out, is the married minister of culture in France. And she makes this decision that she wants her father to acknowledge her publicly and just makes kind of a, a decision that any teenager might make. And it's just ripple effects. Um, it's all you you're never surprised by anything that happens it's not like it's trying to be a great political thriller or something it is just the most incredibly rendered late teenage girl novel that i've mm -hmm. read in a very long time the wow. language is so good paris i've been to paris twice and i haven't been in a decade reading this book i felt like i was wandering around paris it just is so um she was a cookbook writer for a while and so lots of great food writing and she put the recipes for the dishes on her website. <laughs> I love when they do that. So it's like, it's just, it's a very rich novel and it's one of those debuts that it's just like home run out of the park. I wish that I could be going to a bookstore to like fake be a bookseller and just stand there and be like, are you, Oh, you're looking at that book. It's very good. <laughs> um, Christopher, how about you? Uh, I'm going to recommend one book. Um, it's A Burning by Mega Majumdar. Um, it's really fantastic. So you're following three characters. One who posts something on Facebook and arrested for and is arrested for it. One who is her student who is um, uneducated and she's intersex and uh, wants to be an actress. And one who is uh, a, I guess he's a PE teacher who is having a sort of unlikely political career. And you're following these three voices. The burning refers to a train that um, caught on fire and, and, and uh, it was like a seen as an act of terrorism. It's completely stressful. It's a very stressful book. <laughs> you're stressed the whole time you read it. It's, it's, it could be funny if you weren't stressed the whole time because the characters are, are like really, it's like, there's some comic sequences that aren't actually funny because you're just like, this is all horrible. Um, so <laughs> it's a, it's a really difficult read, but oh my God, 
you read it in a setting because you just have to see how these characters interact with one another. It's they're not quite like interacting truly um, because their their actions are just sort of um, affecting each other. It's amazing. I can't wait. I've had it on my nightstand for a while, and I have felt that. I've read the first page and I've felt that like falling forward into the book thing and been like, no, no, I, I can't do this right now. Yeah. It's cool. crazy. Um, definitely uh, pick that up because it's really good. And um, my other recommendation is to pick up. If you have not already, we ride upon sticks. It's yes. so much fun. It's, it's so, so fun. good. You've been talking about, um, we've been talking about things that got picked up or things that um, are going to be adapted. I can totally see the movie of this. Like, mm. It would be amazing. <laughs> um, it's so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Fabulous. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, thank um, you for this book. Thank you for introducing us to Kai's work too. Yeah. And everybody out there, go buy books and read books and uh, review us on iTunes if you can. And um, please go to our patreon.com slash SMDB if you'd like to support the show. And... If you're curious about any of the books, articles, things we mentioned, they'll all be on our website, so many damn books.com. And um, I guess that's all we got. That's it. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.